Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Nate G. Heigler, author of The Parents' Trap, How to Stop Overload Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. And if I mispronounce your name, please do correct. Oh, it's it's Hilger. I don't I really don't care. But since you invited, it's Hilger, not Higgler. Hilger. Great. I wonder if you could start off by telling the audience a little about yourself and how you got started on this project. Great. Thanks. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast, Deirdre. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, my, I, I'm Nate Hilger, as you said, and I got a PhD in economics at Harvard uh, for my graduate training at a time when a lot of really exciting new big data sets were becoming available to social scientists. And one of the coolest applications of those data sets was to dramatically expand what we could study about childhood opportunity and the impact of different childhood opportunities on long-term outcomes, stuff like income and um, final educational attainment and wealth and stuff like that, that really, you know, shapes people's lives. And I was really interested in that just because I, I had grown up in a very economically diverse place, Orange County, California in the 1980s. And I, I feel I, you know, I really saw firsthand some of my more affluent friends whose parents had a lot of fancy educational credentials. They had so many advantages outside of school that my other friends didn't have. You know, they had, if they needed it, they had tutoring, they had counseling, they got private sports lessons and coaching. They got obviously better healthcare. They got, you know, all kinds of special educational advocacy from their parents and so I was really interested. It seemed to matter to me, and it, I was excited to study it up close in data. Um, and then I wound up teaching a course when I was a professor at Brown on inequality of opportunity in the United States, kind of giving an overview of this exciting emerging new literature. And that led me to write this book, which I think is an attempt to change how we view parenting and to focus on the inequality that results when we don't help parents enough. Now, you described the ghost industry at the beginning of the book. Can you tell the audience about that ghost industry? Yeah. The ghost industry is the biggest industry in the country. It has a, a total GDP, if you measure it in a fun, more accurate way, of about $5 trillion or more. It has it, the most employees of any industry in the country. Um, and it has, bizarre, given how huge it is, it, it has almost no political power. It doesn't have a central lobbying wing like the Chamber of Commerce or anything. It doesn't have a union. It doesn't have anything to really have ensure that its voice is represented in political decisions. And of course, that ghost industry is parenting. And uh, another way to think about it, it's it's the child development industry. You know, there are industries that make roads, transportation, there and, and cars. There are industries that make phones and telecommunications. There are industries that make all kinds of things. And parents are really the foundation of the industry that makes human skill, 
and that's the child development industry. Now, you talk a lot about skill growth in parenting. Can you explain that in terms of how important it is? Yeah. So parents are really endowing their kids with the skills that will determine the shape, the shape of their, their career. These skills are not just math and reading. They are things that span social and emotional skills, things like resilience, things like uh, empathy to understand how other people will react to your actions and words. They are things like, um, you know, specific skills, like how to play a musical instrument or how to throw a baseball. Um, and this heat, large portfolio of skills really should be viewed almost like a financial bequest. You know, some parents are fortunate to leave their kids with large financial bequests worth, you know, maybe a million dollars or more in, in a small, small share of cases. But in a much larger share of cases, the main bequest of economic value that parents leave to their children is this portfolio of skills that they help children to develop during, early in their lives. Now, you mentioned that 90% of the time is spent outside of school. Why is this fact so very important for policy makers? I think a lot of people will hear um, us talking about how parents are the bedrock of child skill development, and they might have this reaction, which I also had before I wrote the book, that, well, wait a minute, isn't that what our public K-12 education system is, is for? And it seems like kids spend a lot of time in that education system. The fact is, that education system is much more limited than we realize. It only starts at age five, when kids go to start kindergarten. And it's only in session about half of all days each year, once it starts, because there's summer break, winter break, spring break, and weekends. And then of those half of the days that it's in session, it's only operating for about a third of the day. And so that means when you add all that up, 90% of the time that children have available to build skill from birth through age 18 is by default, the responsibility of parents to structure and to manage and to orchestrate all that after school time, all that summertime, all that vast ocean of time before age five is really something that we are asking parents to fill as productively as possible. And that guarantees a massive amount of inequality. You know, you talk about child skill development and you talk about two major items, time and money. Why are these so important? Well, time is really important for child skill development because skills are different from other kinds of valuable assets. Skills are like assets, you know, like stocks and bonds. You know, if you learning how to read is a lot like getting a, a big endowment of stocks because you, you buy the asset and then it delivers uh, a flow of value over time. With stocks, that can be dividends or capital gains. With bonds, it's interest payments. With real estate, it's you know the rent checks that your tenants pay and also capital gains. With skills, you, you get the return in a different way. You get it through having a more successful career, a more rewarding career, better health, better relationships. And um, these skills are really the main component of wealth for most people. It's not their bank accounts. It's the, the things that they are able to do and, and use to earn a living. And skills are different from other assets in that they are not bought or sold at the marketplace. You can't just go to Walmart and buy you know, a copy of literacy or a copy of, of resilience. You have to learn skills and learning skills is a process that happens in time. 
And so whoever controls children's time is really in charge of skill development. That I think is um, the primary determinant of skill is how well children are able to make use of their time to build skills. But money is also really important, as you mentioned, um, tutors and counselors and um, coaches and teachers, all these professionals that can help children to make the best use of their time in that 90% of hours outside of our public school system, all those professionals cost quite a bit of money. And that is a real problem for most parents. You talk about rich kids being more likely to learn from teachers with college degrees. Tell us more about that. So that rich kids and poor kids, when they're in that 10% of time, when they are in the public school system, they have remarkably equal opportunities in terms of the resource, at least in terms of the nominal resources that are available to them. They all have teachers who have college degrees. You might find an exception here and there, but you know, over 90, something like 99% of public school teachers have college degrees. And that's an advantage. I think most of most parents would be concerned if they found out that their, their child was at uh, a school where a lot of the teachers did not have college degrees. Um, those that they might be great teachers, but on average, it would raise questions. We'd worry that those teachers might not be as qualified as the teachers at another school who did have college degrees. In that 90% of time that kids spend outside of school, the situation is completely different. Parents have to play a role as teachers and tutors and counselors and coaches in that 90% of time. And parents have radically different qualifications and kind you know, life experiences that enable them to fulfill those roles more and less successfully. So if you think about home kind of like you think about school, you should be really worried that some kids um, are getting instruction from people who don't have as many professional and educational resources to bring to bear on, on doing that job really well. Tell us about the home environment and why that is so important. Well, it comes back to this fact that kids spend most of their time at home and we do not have the kinds of equalizing forces at home that we have in our K-12 school system. In addition to our K-12, our K-12 school system being remarkably equal in terms of teacher qualifications across schools that serve rich and poor kids, it is also remarkably equal in terms of overall financial resources. There's this notion that rich kids go to schools that have a lot more spending per student than poor kids. That used to be true 100 years ago. It's not really that true anymore um, because state and federal funding sources have largely leveled the funding playing field. Outside of school, the situation is completely different. Higher income parents spend 15 times as much as lower income parents on educational resources such as tutors and counselors and books and computers. So if you think that if you start to think about the home environment as a learning environment of equal importance as school, you start to realize that it looks a lot like schools looked in the 19th century when there was radical, unabashed, atrocious levels of inequality, both across rich kids and poor kids and across white kids and non-white kids. And that's really what is still prevailing today in the most important school that kids attend, which is their day-to-day life outside of our public school system when they are at home and in their communities. Now, let's look at the school districts and spending. You gave us some information about New York, Boston, Baltimore, and the money that they spend. And then you gave the example of Utah schools. Tell us more. Well, that's trying to convince people in that section of the book. When I when I 
share this this fact that um, there is not any longer a large spending gap between schools serving predominantly poor kids and schools serving predominantly non-poor kids, a lot of readers are very skeptical. They think, how can that possibly be true? And I spend some time explaining how that has come to pass and trying to convince people that this is this is true. And to do that, I go through some of uh, some specific examples of um, school districts around the country where you might think you, you, they serve some of these school districts serve very low income kids, and you might think they would have very weak spending, but in fact they have very high spending. And I talk about how the var- there is variation in spending across schools and districts, but it doesn't follow these harsh socioeconomic lines in the way that you would expect. And Utah is kind of a fun example of that. Utah has a lot of the lowest spending schools in the country are in Utah. And that's not because Utah doesn't care about education. It's not because Utah has something terribly wrong with their tax base. It's just that Utah has a lot of kids. You know, Utah has um, a high fertility rate. And that means there are more kids per adult. And that makes it hard to raise as much money per kid to fund the K-12 school system. And so that's an example of how K-12 spending patterns are not really the um, the savage inequality story that a lot of people have in mind. Family gaps, do they explain inequality? I think family gaps do explain the most important kinds of inequality, which in my view are inequality between rich kids and poor kids in terms of how their careers and their professional and um social lives unfold, and inequality between white and non-white kids. I think family, the, the, the gaps in the opportunities that families are empowered to give their children explain a very large share of that inequality by race and by class. More of it by class, because with race, there are other complicating factors in terms of um, bias in the labor market and financial markets and, and criminal justice uh, markets, of course. But um, even despite those important factors, um, these opportunity gaps across families, I think, play a huge role in, um, you know, in explaining these unfortunate patterns that rich kids grow up to earn, you know, over a million dollars more over the course of their lives than than poor kids because they have so much more successful careers because they've had the opportunity to build so many more skills when they enter the labor market. Missing link. Parents with high levels of skill, do they demand to have teachers teach their children that have high levels of skill? Is this the missing link? Um, I think the reason why there, so I think you, Deirdre, correct me if I'm wrong. I think what you're referring to, there is a pattern that higher income families, their students attend schools where um, they have access to better teachers. Uh, is, is that, that's kind of the, the fact that you're referring to right? Um, I think part of that could be that higher income parents are more demanding and, and are more fluent in bureaucracy and advocating for their kids through these complex educational systems. But I think there's a deeper force at work here, which is that higher income kids are easier to teach. They're easier to teach because their parents are basically providing a lot of additional support resources outside of school. It's easier to teach a kid if that kid comes into your classroom with great, you know, literacy and numeracy because they attended a good early childhood learning environment. It's easier to teach a kid if they're getting a private tutoring 
outside of school, or if their parents are helping them with their homework at night because their parents know how to do algebra and uh, geometry and statistics. It's easier to teach a kid how to write if their parents are reviewing their essays and giving them editorial feedback. And that means that schools serving higher income kids, even if they have equal salaries, they have an easier time recruiting and retaining the best teachers in a competitive labor market. And I think if we could equalize, if we could level the playing field outside of school, that would level the remaining inequalities in the playing field that exist inside school for that reason. Another missing link, affordable early education. Tell us, what did you find about the early education? Well, in the first chapter of the book, I had a lot of fun. I hope I hope um, you and I hope other readers enjoy this first chapter. I had a lot of fun going through the history of research on skill formation in early childhood. And it goes into, it begins with this story of a, an amazing woman named Cora Hillis, who is this visionary leader who helped create something called the Iowa Child Welfare Research Station in the early 20th century. Um, and that began an almost century long series of experiments about to sort of demonstrate that um, early learning environments play a huge role in dictating child skill development. And that, you know, there was this old notion that uh, kids kind of have an inborn innate kind of talent, and there wasn't much you could do to shift that. And this long series of really strange, beautiful experiments by a number of people um, culminating in the um, Infant Health and Development Program uh, led by Ruby Hearn in uh, all across the country in the 1990s um, showed that if you give poor kids access to really high quality really carefully choreographed early learning environments, you can close early child skill, at least cognitive skill developments. You can close early cognitive skill development gaps between rich kids and poor kids when they enter kindergarten. And I just find that that finding mind blowing because it means we really are setting up poor kids to fail in this country by starting our public education system at age five. We're just inviting all of these kids to fall behind year after year after year in ways that we know how to prevent, but we don't bother to prevent it. And then when they get to school at age five, we blame the school for not having the same kinds of results as schools that serve rich kids. And I just found that I found that I had a lot of fun writing that chapter. There are a lot of great personalities involved and a lot of drama. And um, I hope to make more people aware of, of those findings. Tell us more about the American tax records at the IRS and how that information about parents and children helped to explain this whole question of inequality. So that was that was a big, exciting new data set that I helped to develop. I, you know, I played a junior role. I was a graduate student um, on a project led by some of the world's greatest economists, Raj Chetty, Emmanuel Saez, and John Friedman, with my other graduate student colleague at the time, Danny Yagan, who's now a professor at Berkeley. We helped to turn the U.S. tax records uh, at the IRS into a research data set. Um, there were, you know, there are hundreds of tax forms and there are all these anomalies and inconsistencies that make it hard to use them as for research. And we helped clean that up and we did, uh, we started this chain of research that really has 
changed perspectives on the importance of childhood opportunity in a number of domains. And the amazing thing about this data set was that it linked um, childhood opportunity to, well, as I mentioned earlier, really cool long-term outcomes like how much kids were earning in their 20s and 30s. And to give you an example of what we did, the first application we did of these data was we found um, an old experiment called the Tennessee Star class size experiment. And that experiment had randomized some kids into bigger and smaller kindergarten classrooms. But another aspect of that experiment was that it incidentally also randomized kids across classrooms. So it randomized kids across teachers. And that gave us a perfect experiment. We linked um, those 12,000 kids in that experiment to their tax records. And we were then able to follow those kids from age five into their early careers in their late 20s. And we, we were able to see that some kids who got randomized into a more advantageous classroom had measurably higher earnings earlier in their career. And if you added that up across all the kids in a kindergarten classroom, you found that a moderately better kindergarten teacher was creating an additional 300, I, I forget exactly the number, two or $300,000 per year in terms of higher, earn, higher future earnings for her little kindergarten students. And so that was a first taste of the sort of the power of these new data to reveal the importance of childhood opportunity. What did you learn about childhood circumstances and how that affects inequality? What did I learn from the from the IRS data set? Yes. Oh man, well, I'll, there have been at this point there have been dozens of really important papers on all, all many domains um, leveraging the, these powerful aspects of that data set by a lot of great researchers. Um, but just when we started, we learned, you know, right away, we learned that your, your teacher really matters. You know, in, if your kindergarten teacher really matters, then, you know, we suspected other teachers mattered and subsequent research by um, Raj Chetty and John Friedman and Jonah Rockoff strongly confirmed that studying middle school teachers uh, found that a better middle school teacher had a significant impact on your future earnings. Um, I, in my own dissertation, I, I studied the impact of parental income shocks uh, on children's educational attainment. So I found that if you got unlucky and your parent um, lost their job just before you were applying to college, so you, you were effectively applying to college with a lot less family income, um, you know, I was I thought that might reduce the quality of the college you attended or cause you to, to be less likely to attend college, but it had almost no impact. And that, to me, I found that finding almost impossible to believe, but the data were so good and so powerful and so precise that it forced me to rethink things. And what I realized is that um, parental income was really a lot less important than I expected in terms of determining children's educational outcomes, at least in, in college. And that's because parents are not spending all of their additional income on helping kids attend college. They're only probably spending a tiny share of that. Um, and that, that shaped my perspective on uh, the best way to improve opportunity for kids. And in the book, I argue this uh, strongly, that the best way to improve opportunity to kids is to give more professional support services, such as tutors, teachers, counselors, and direct subsidies, such as college financial aid. And that just giving parents more money is not going to have as big an impact as many people hope, hope for. Now, let's look at another variable housing location. 
does it matter in educational outcome? Absolutely. So that's another domain that this incredible data set has really reshaped knowledge. Um, housing, there's also been work on healthcare. Um, and in this housing debate, similar to the way that we, we linked the um, Tennessee Star class size experiment to the tax records, um, Raj Chetty and um, Nathan Hendren and Larry Katz linked this another older experiment, the moving to opportunity experiment to the tax records and found that kids who had been randomly shifted into living in a better neighborhood early in their lives went on to earn, earn hundreds of thousands of dollars of higher income later on in their careers, over the course of their careers, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If ki- and that, that finding was only there for kids who got shifted to a better neighborhood early enough in childhood to reap the full benefits. That's a finding that I think is, is coming up over and over again across these different domains is that the impact of these, of like relatively moderate differences in childhood opportunity is often in the ballpark of hundreds of thousands of dollars in children's future, future career earnings. Um, I think that finding coming out of the IRS tax records is just, it, it really, I'm doing something wrong in the book if it doesn't cause people to stop and think, wait a minute, why on earth are we not doing more to understand these opportunities and to shift them, to, to expand more opportunity to kids? Because there are like trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars being left on the table when we fail to offer these kinds of effective opportunities to kids around the country. Another variable, homework. Six hours a week helping kids with homework. Tell us more. So in the book, I spend some time trying to help people understand that parenting is a, a, I mean, anybody who's a parent or like yourself, you know, an involved aunt or uncle who is around families, um, you know, you know, we know that parenting is hard and complicated, but I think it doesn't, it still doesn't get the respect that it deserves. It gets a kind of sentimental respect. You know, it's this like warm Norman Rockwell kind of respect, but I don't think it gets the respect that engineers get or pilots get or physicians or lawyers get. And I try to push against that a little bit in the book. I try to pick apart some of the jobs involved in parenting. And I show that parents have to be tutors and college guidance counselors and nutrition counselors, and chief executive officers of small businesses. And you're referring to the section where I talk about parents have to be tutors. When schools rely on homework, they are implicitly relying on parents to be assistant teachers and as tutors. And some parents are much better equipped to be tutors than others. If you went to college and majored in a quantitative field, you're going to be pretty comfortable helping your kid with you know, basic math stuff. You're going to be able to help them work through that extra, uh, that, that challenge on their problem set. If you dropped out of high school or you went to college, but you didn't graduate and you didn't major in a quantitative field and math is not your strong suit. When your teacher assigns your student math homework, you know, your kid is at a disadvantage because you're not going to be able to confidently help them resolve confusion. Um, and so that's just one area where I think we rely too heavily on parents and, the result is a lot of inequality. In chapter three, you talk about teaching old parents new tricks. What <laughs> yeah. Tell us more about that. In that chapter, so some people hear the idea that 
you know, there's a lot of inequality in terms of how parents are set up to support their kids in their educational and health uh, growth in, in their the growth of their health and education. And they think, well, okay, maybe you maybe we should help parents be better at these roles by training them by offering more um, training on how to be a better tutor or nutrition counselor or um, college guidance counselor and teach parents these skills. In that chapter, I'm exploring that idea. And there's a long history of parent training programs in, in, in psychology, especially. And as part in this chapter, I, I review the evidence and I find that two findings. One, when there are studies that get parents to attend these programs, they pretty often find significant benefits. Parents can learn, certainly can learn how to do their jobs better. The second finding, however, is a little more concerning, which is that parents have basically no interest in attending these training programs. They, once these programs are out in the wild and they're not in like a university laboratory, um, they really struggle to recruit parents to participate, especially the parents who are most likely to benefit, who don't have the kinds of educational and professional resources that um, benefit kids in, in terms of offering more opportunity. To explore this further and go deeper than just reviewing the academic research, I myself attended a three-month-long, um, once-a-week parent training program. And it's I, I chose a program that was a little unusual in that it was court-ordered for parents to attend this program. So it wasn't just voluntary. It was a wide range of parents who might not otherwise voluntarily attend a parent training program. And it was to help them deal with kids who were getting involved in the criminal justice system. These kids were running away from home, they were dabbling in drugs, they were getting involved in violence, they were stealing things, they had they had various kinds of um, pretty severe problems. And um, so I attended this class, and I kind of got to feel and experience the findings in the literature. A lot of the material being conveyed in this class by the, by the, the instructors was pretty valuable. You know, it was a really nuanced, complicated stuff, strategies to be better at disciplining your kids, strategies to keep your kid from hanging out with the wrong crowd of, of friends, um, strategies to help your kid deal with substance abuse, to stay away from gang violence. They were, they were nuanced, well-thought-out strategies, but I found it really daunting to implement these strategies. They were really complicated. They seemed almost like you would need a lot of professional support to do them well. I also found the overall experience very tiring. You know, when I was doing this, like all the other parents in the program, I had a full-time job and I would take uh, public transit over to the public high school where the class was being held after work. And I would sit in the classroom for two to three hours, depending on the week, and um, listen to the instructors. And I just found it exhausting. And I have to say, I, I can understand why the vast majority of parents do not sign up for these kinds of courses. And that's why I'm not optimistic that training parents is really a good way forward to equalize opportunity for kids in our country. What about the home visiting? So home visit programs, again, when, when parents can be convinced to participate, the results are, are impressive. Um, the nurse family partnership has had really impressive results, um, helping low, really low income first time young moms, uh, handle the stress and the, the complexity of, of, you know, bringing that baby home and bonding with them and getting their heads around that whole early part of parenting, which, you know, I, I can really relate to how intimidating and hard that is as a parent myself. But again, these programs struggle to recruit a lot of participants and 
even though they are probably in, in some cases they can be cost effective and they might be worthwhile for subsets of parents, the impacts are nothing like what you see for great early learning programs, like good early education programs, um, or even like tutoring. I think the best path forward is not to um, invade parents' homes. It's, you know, with appointments that are kind of cumbersome to keep and you might be tired in your pajamas and haven't showered in three days. And now a social worker wants to come to your house. I think that is not, that can be valuable, but I think the really big ticket thing we need to do to level the playing field in our country is not train parents and not do these home visiting programs, but to just make professional services from tutors and counselors and coaches and teachers much more widely available in that 90% of time the kids spend outside of school. And that might be through subsidies to local early learning centers, subsidies to um, school systems to provide much richer support in terms of tutoring and extracurricular and summer activities, um, better support for college preparation and college guidance. Um, a lot of the things that higher income families routinely provide to their children, but are off limits to large swaths of American children. Chapter four, you talk about structural challenges. Um, do you want to say anything about the, the IRS data and the structural challenges? Um, I think one, the, the, the place where, um, did you have one in mind, Deirdre? Well, before I dive in? I think you talked about poor penny and uh, lucky. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that a little bit earlier in our conversation um, about how I found in the IRS data that parental income was a surprisingly unimportant determinant of children's college outcomes. One of the structural factors that you might think would limit parents. And so in this chapter, I talk about a number of structural factors that make it really hard for parents on their own to build skills effectively in kids. You know, one of those structural factors is practice. You know, if you're a teacher, if you're a professional teacher, you might teach algebra to a hundred kids a year. So that gives you a lot of repetition and experience and practice. And that really helps you improve your productivity over time. If you're a parent, you don't get that kind of practice. You have one or two or maybe three kids. And um, that means you get to go through algebra one or two or three times. You don't get that practice. So that's one structural factor. Another structural factor I talk about that links up to the IRS data is something called the borrowing constraint. Normally, in our economy, if you want to buy a big ticket item that you can't pay for up front, you take out a loan. And there are a couple ways to do that. If you want to buy a house, you, you get a mortgage. And the reason why banks are willing to give you a mortgage is because you, if you don't pay up, they'll seize your house and they can sell the house and make most of their money back. If you're a small business, you know, and you want to buy capital for your new restaurant, you can get a loan from the bank because the bank knows that that capital is going to um, generate income and you can use that income from selling meals to customers to pay back the loan. If you're a parent and you want to spend $100,000 to give your kid five years of private, high quality, early childhood education, good luck finding a bank to give you that loan. Because the impact of that investment is more opportunity and higher income for your child throughout their future career as an adult. But you don't own that income. Your child is not your slave. You don't own their income. And so your child would have to voluntarily give the money back to their parents so that their parents could repay the bank. And that's just not a viable notion for a financial market. So people have gotten, economists especially, have gotten really wrapped up 
around the idea of this structural constraint. But when I looked at the data to measure its actual empirical importance, in terms of driving college outcomes, it was a lot less important than I expected. When I was able to look at, you know, 100 million people in the data and really see these effects up close, um, it was a lot less important than I thought. And in the book, I argue the other structural factors are actually perhaps surprisingly a lot more important um, in terms of just building skills is a really hard thing to do. And if you're a parent and you don't have the information or the practice required to build these skills, you're going to struggle. And I was really surprised to see sociologists, especially, you know, Annette Leroux, this wonderful sociologist, um, really reached the same conclusion when they observed families up close. They found that the lower income families were were struggling to provide the same kinds of opportunities to their kids as the higher income families, but it wasn't just about affording things. It was really about being able to master the complex craft of child skill development. Chapter five, skill development and racial inequality. One statistic you uh, told us was 1970 black male earning power was 50% less than white men. But in 2014, black men earning power is 65% less. What's going on there? Yeah, so that pattern has been really sad and frustrating for a lot of people to 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 watch play out. You know, I think if you go if you went back to the civil rights movement and the the legislation the crowning achievements of that movement, um, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act and the, the, um, the, the laws that prohibited discrimination in labor markets and housing markets and financial markets, you would have, I think, optimistically hoped that Black men would be earning, would, you know, be earning a lot more today than they are. And what I argue is that um, eliminating narrowing sort of making it legally harder to discriminate was in retrospect a lot less powerful than you might have hoped and the reason is because it didn't do anything to address skill development opportunity gaps that remain today between white kids and black kids and the reason the origin of those skill development opportunity gaps obviously goes back to slavery and Jim Crow, where one of the biggest priorities of white society was to make sure that the black community could not develop skills. But, and they, you know, they did that by um, prohibiting education for a long time and prohibiting literacy and numeracy for a long time. And then making black schools segregated and impoverished with, you know, a hundred kids per class with undertrained teachers. And I argue that if you, undermine the skill base of a group and you segregate that group, the long-term implications are pretty devastating. And the best way to address that, and and once that has happened to a group and they've had their their professional skills, um, you know, destroyed and they've been prevented from developing these kinds of professional skills, despite all their best efforts, um, just eliminating, you know, narrowing or reducing discrimination in labor markets is not going to be very powerful because these groups still will not be able to develop the kinds of skills that they would really need to capitalize on a more level playing field in labor markets. And to do that, you have to start with big interventions to alleviate 
to expand skill development opportunities to all kids early in life and continuing on through K-12, through, through adolescence and early career formation. And that's why, that's what I'm arguing for in the book. And I think the policies I argue for in the book would do more to address black, white income inequality than really anything else you can imagine. Now, you talk about Blacks and Asians in the 1940s. They were basically similar incomes, but the Asian Americans were able to escape poverty. What did you find there? Yeah. So those facts you mentioned are only true in California. The Black population in America was dramatically lower income than the Asian population, if you look nationally, because the Black population in the South was so horrendously poor. But if you focus on the the very different subset of African-Americans who moved to California before World War II, they had a pretty similar income distribution to the Chinese and Japanese migrants living in California at that time. Now, I think when a lot of people hear you mention that the book compares Black people and Asian people, that's going to put some people's uh, dander up, you know? I don't know. How did you feel? How did you perceive that chapter, Deidre? I'm curious for your reactions. Was that, what are your thoughts? I had to go back in time to 1940, and I had to also look at the population that was migrating there. The Black people had something to get to California in 1940. You yeah. could not, you know, so that's that's a whole different population of people. Yeah, totally. That's right. So that's a really important observation. Um and once, once you compare those groups, which I think is, you know, those are very different groups, but they're much more comparable than Black and Asian people nationally at that time. An interesting thing about California specifically was that it was kind of the epicenter of anti-Asian discrimination before World War II. It didn't have um, the same kind of violent anti-Black hysteria that they had in the South. Uh, I'm sure there was still racism, of course, but... Um, People were much more concerned about Asian, white people were more concerned about Asians because that was the more um, tangible threat in, in, as they perceived it. Um, and so the, California did have a sort of Jim Crow regime, like in the South. It was a much more moderate version of Jim Crow, but it affected Asian Americans there at, at least as heavily as it affected Black Americans in California. So it's a weird environment where these two groups are pretty similar in terms of their parental income that the kids are going to have. And the Asians are experiencing, if anything, you know, equal or maybe even worse discrimination in terms of prejudice as the black people at that time. And I dig up some kind of cool archival data on attitudes to document that. And um, yeah, and Asians were able to, Chinese and Japanese Americans were able to pull ahead. And I, whereas the, the black um, Californians were not. And I think what accounts for that is that the Asian Americans who came, Chinese and Japanese people who came to California at that time were a very advantaged group. They had much higher education than people in Japan and China on average, and they had to pay for this expensive migrant journey. And they had to be, they couldn't be working class because of the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Gentleman's Agreement, which prevented you know, working class Chinese and Japanese people from coming to America. So they had to be merchants. They had to be professionals. And their income was artificially low before World War II because they couldn't access most of the best professions and they couldn't start um, the best kinds of businesses. But then once um, the civil rights movement took hold, and it took hold a little bit earlier in California than it did in other parts of the country, 
labor markets became a lot more open to non-white workers and entrepreneurs. And I think Chinese and Japanese Americans were able to capitalize on that much more effectively than Black Californians because they had this much larger base of skills that they could pass on to their kids through teaching and um, and and convert into high paying jobs. So I, I think it's all about the skill base that a group is able to bring to bear on the labor market. But can we also say that discrimination? did exist for African-Americans and still does. That Can we say that Asian-Americans maybe were considered honorary whites? So in, in, of course, discrimination does still exist. If you go back to before World War II, Asian-Americans in California were not honorary whites. Neither were Black Californians. They were both considered subhuman by a large share of white people. And um, I don't think you can write off the success of Asian Americans in California by claiming that they didn't face the kinds of discrimination that Black Californians faced. I think both groups faced discrimination. And in the book, I argue that the reason why Asians were able to overcome that is they had um, brought with them, we, we, were, we only let high-skilled Asians into the country on average, and we had deliberately annihilated the opportunities to build skill in the black community for generations. And um, the optimistic implication of this interpretation is that if we invest, if we are able to invest more heavily in black children's skill growth through um, not just the narrow slice of childhood that is K-12 education, but also through early childhood education, age zero to five, through tutoring, through extracurricular after-school programs, through summer programs, through college guidance counseling, through apprenticeships and early career formation, if we can level the playing field for skill development in that 90% of time that kids spend currently outside of school, Black people will be able to capitalize on those skills by getting high-paying jobs. And that's really that, that's a controversial message of the book, but I think it is, um, I'm going to stick with it. That's, that's what I think the implication is. Chapter six, getting more by asking for less. What what are you talking about here concerning the baby college? Um, the baby college. Um, the chapter on getting more by asking for less was is all about how we need to when when we're trying to level the playing field for kids, we need to develop public policies that do not ask parents to put in more time or spend more money or figure out more complicated paperwork or rules or procedures that we need to assume parents are freakishly busy and have very little spare bandwidth and um, have policies that rely on professionals or um, algorithms to give kids opportunity rather than assuming parents can like volunteer a lot of additional time and, and energy and money. Um, you have to jog my memory on how baby college fits into that, but that's the main lesson of that chapter. Absolutely. Now you talk about family care, the door to an alternative reality. What would this family care look like? Um, I'm I, so I'm let's, let's dive into family care, but I think I'm sorry to go back one second in terms of baby college. I think I'm remembering how that illustrates the, the getting more by asking for less principle. It's, I, I talk about early childhood education as baby college because the impact on future earnings appears to be just as large from good early childhood education as it does from college. 
which, which is striking. And it's similar cost too. Uh, early childhood education is similar expenditure as college. Um, and I talk about a comparison of two different ways that we might help parents in, in, gain more um, access to good early learning opportunities for their kids. One of those ways asks kind of less of parents. It's called Head Start. And the reason why Head Start is pretty easy on parents is because all Head Start centers are relatively relatively good. They're not perfect, but they're relatively good in terms of um, they have at least some qualified teachers. They can't have class sizes that are too big. Um, they have to have reasonably clean and healthy facilities. Um, and studies have found that when kids are randomized into Head Start, lower income kids really benefit from that. There's another approach to helping kids access early learning, and that is exemplified by a voucher system, uh, the the block grant, the child care block grant program. And that program gives parents essentially vouchers, and it says, good luck, go find an early learning, early childhood education program for your kid, and we'll pay you back whatever you find. And that places a huge burden on parents to avoid bad programs and find good programs. And the results of research on that study are very different. They find that parents really struggle to, to, to solve this problem and find good programs. And the result is that kids who are randomized into access to these vouchers, um, they wind up doing slightly worse. And I think that illustrates this getting more by asking for less principle, because we need programs that do not ask parents to do a lot of sophisticated shopping and vetting of child development programs because parent, the parents who need these programs the most are least equipped in time and expertise to, to sort through the good programs and, and whittle and you know, separate them from the bad programs. Um, so that's what the baby college section was about. If you any, any thoughts or questions, Deirdre, before we move on to talk, talking about family care? No, that, that answered everything. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, so you asked about family care. So family care, I, in the book, I really don't like reading nonfiction books that just whine and just complain about problems and then say, you know, too bad, the world sucks. <laughs> so I tried to really develop a full-blown solution to the problems that we've been talking about during this, this whole discussion. And I am, it's, I'm really happy to report that the evidence on child development interventions is extremely promising. It looks like we really can develop programs that have huge positive impacts on kids in cost-effective ways. And um, I put a lot of this research together into a proposal for something I call family care. And it's called family care because it's modeled on Medicare. Medicare is a multi-hundred billion dollar program to solve a big problem, which is that old people need health care and health care is expensive. Surgery and physicians and nurses and hospitals and operating rooms, they're all very expensive. And um, without Medicare, lower income and working class and even middle class Americans in their retirement would not be able to access these kinds of services. So Medicare solves that problem to a large extent. Family care would do the same thing for a different problem, which is child development. This is the main problem that people have early in their life. Health care is the main problem people have later in their life. And skill development is the main problem people have early in their life. And we don't have any program like Medicare to address this early problem, even though it is even more important than elderly healthcare problems. So family care would also be hundreds of billions of dollars, but that's because it is solving an equally momentous problem. And it would largely 
pay for itself because it would, by building skills in kids, it would increase their future incomes, like we've learned from the IRS tax data and many other cool emerging data sets. And it would therefore cause kids to pay more in tax revenue, commit fewer crimes, rely less on government support services to prevent poverty. It would do all kinds of really valuable things that would pay taxpayers back and improve everyone's quality of life. Family care would basically level the playing field in that 90% of time that currently exists outside of the K-12 school system, and that places this unrealistically huge burden on parents. So it would start with um, paid parental leave because, you know, you can't, you can't rely on professionals to form that initial bond between parent and newborn babies. So it would give everybody access to a few months of paid leave to form that bond and get started on their parenting journey. Then it would provide universally affordable, high-quality early education you know, based kind of like Head Start, but modeled in a more vouchery way, where you could you could go to your local church if they if your church had a good early education program, you could access that, and you wouldn't have to pay you know twelve, fifteen, eighteen, thirty thousand dollars a year um, if you couldn't afford that. The the taxpayers would pick up that tab because they knew that it would serve them in the long run by helping your child have a better career down the road. After early childhood education, it would move on to after school ac activities, so extracurricular activities um, in engineering and science and math and art and music, all kinds of stuff, whatever kids and families wanted. It would fill in gaps during summer break by giving everybody access to high quality summer learning opportunities. It would provide tutoring for kids who are struggling with um, educational uh, subjects. It would provide better health care because right now Medicaid, which serves families, is insultingly stingy compared to Medi Medicare. It reimburses physicians something like 72 cents on the dollar compared to Medicare, which means if you're a physician and you want to serve parents and kids, you have to pay a penalty compared to serving old people. That makes no sense. <laughs> um, in addition to improving healthcare for families, family care would also fill in gaps in college guidance counseling and um, various other human services. Basically, the, the idea of family care is to make professional support much more widely available um, through local community organizations to lower income and working class and middle class families in ways that today only affluent, highly educated families are able to access. And I think this would dramatically level the playing field. It would make lower income families reach uh, you know, their early careers in a position to compete with higher income kids. There would no longer be this predestined nature of life in America where low-income kids have worse careers than high-income kids. And I just think that would be so great and such a great investment for our country. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? I can. The next project I'll be working on is um, a girl who my wife and I gave birth to a week ago. <laughs> so we have a toddler, a little boy, and we now have a tiny little girl. And I will not be thinking about books very much over the next few months. I'll be trying to keep this little creature alive and um, stay awake and not go crazy. So that's my next project for now. <laughs> We'd like to thank you for being on this podcast. And again, the book is The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. Thank you again. Thank you so much for the chance to speak with you and your audience, Deirdre.